The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth in this and in many passages we've heard, talked about, sung about already this morning. The great truth that you, in relation to your people, are a shield, a protector, a refuge, a tower. And in the midst of times of difficulty and times of hardship, and in particular this morning, as we'll talk about, in times of, of spiritual persecution, of hardship because of Jesus. When things like that come to us, your people, Lord, you say, rejoice and be glad in that day that you have been found worthy to suffer for the name, which makes no sense to us unless we understand you. Thank you that you give grace to us to enable us to walk in your footsteps after you. To walk in this world as those who are poor and those who are hungry and those who are weeping and at the same time rejoicing and leaping for joy. Both at the same time. That's like you, the man of sorrows, who was always pleased as you saw the Father's will done. It's like you, Jesus. You give us grace to walk after you, and I say thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, would you meet us here this morning? Would you meet us over your word here this morning in the midst of all the various realities of our lives that we face? Would you meet us? Father, please, by your Spirit's power, God Almighty, would you draw near to us? Would you meet us? Would you produce in us hope and joy and change? We desire more than right doctrine and catchy songs. We desire more than an emotional buzz. Father, we want to be your children in a way that is, that is right and whole, that gives proper testimony about our lineage, that, that tells the world something true about who you are and thereby is a good testimony to the world and is a witness to you and an honor to you and is, is filling and joy-giving to us. We want to be your children. But to various degrees, Lord, we live here hard-pressed and confused and afraid sometimes, just afraid. So Father, please draw near and give hope. Remind us that you are our tower. 
call us to take refuge in you and to rejoice. And use this passage in Luke this morning towards that end. Would you please, Lord, build your church. Honor Jesus here. Make us your people whole. More so at least, Lord, I I know we will not be that way completely till we reach heaven with you, but more so, I pray, would you make us whole. Give order to my words. Keep me from from talking and and just pronouncing words that are a waste of time. Give, Give me words that are useful. And give us ears that listen well. And Spirit, would you speak? Would you illumine the Word and lift up Jesus and build the church? For His honor and for our good, I ask. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 6 where we continue on with Luke's account of that great teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And as we've seen, a, a large group of people, a multitude of people from all over has gathered come to Jesus here at this place to be healed by him and also to hear him teach. As we saw, that's, that's a large group of people, most of, whom does not, most of whom do not claim any kind of allegiance to him, don't claim to be followers of his. So he, he talks to all of them. All of them can hear him, which is an important point to note for our passage this morning. But as we saw in verse 20, his immediate audience is his disciples. He's speaking most pointedly to those who are self-professing followers. We would call them professing Christians, the church. And in verses 20 and 21, as we saw, Jesus spoke three beatitudes, three statements of, of pronounced blessing, of pronounced delight, of good fortune to his disciples. Blessed are you, you who are poor, who are hungry now and who weep now, using literal realities to help connect our minds to attitudes that accompany those realities, a a lowliness of spirit, and and particularly, as we saw last week, a life that's colored by a longing for more amidst insufficiency. This is a good world. There's good here for certain, but a Christian's life is colored by the fact that this is not good enough. We know there should be more. We know there will be more. And and so we sense lack, particularly as we live here in this fallen world. We know of our, we see of the lack of righteousness and the wreckage that results under which we suffer and with which we afflict, if we're honest. And we long for righteousness to grow in us and for the righteous king to come and reign. And we hunger for that day, sorrowful that it isn't here yet. That colors life. Even while we live in this good world, we recognize that it's fallen and we long for more. And he tells us that to correct us in what we chase after, but also particularly to encourage us because in the midst of that longing, in the midst of that hungering, he says, blessed are you who are like that, for you shall be, one day in the future, satisfied. You shall laugh. Because there is a day of reversing coming. There is a day when there will be no more tears and no more lack, but great, full sufficiency. Christ has secured a great future for us. 
he tells us that to encourage us in our hungering and in our weeping. But he's talking about the future, and that leads us to our passage for today, the final beatitude, which is a different statement of blessing because the first three talked about the character of a Christian, and this one talks about the response to Christian, Christians, what will happen to Christians, what will be for us. And then Jesus turns and talks about what will be for others. Verses 24 to 26, he tells us the other side of the story. So he's told us one side of the story, and now, as we'll see here this morning, he also tells us the other side. While there is clearly blessed, 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 there is also woe, woe, woe. These two halves. Not only are the lowly lifted up, but the high and mighty are also cast down. And there is warning, and even for Christians, encouragement in that as well. So we're going to look at that. We'll see the end of the Beatitudes and, and then the other half of the story too, the woes this morning in verses 24 to 26. That's what we're going to look at. Let me read the passage. I'm going to begin in verse 20, and I'll read through 26 just to get the whole flow of the passage. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did, so, did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. The word of the Lord. Let me make two observations, one related to the beatitude and one related to the woes that then ties them all together. So here's the first observation. And, and really, before, before I say it, I, I find myself sometimes reading these things and thinking, how do they come across to people? How, how does it sound off my lips? How does, it, how does it look out of my face? And I don't know how, how you take that, but, but what I want to say is, would you hear it and would you see it as joy? I'm not going to try to act that out, but I want you to hear joy. The dominant theme in this, while, while it is... I mean, a bunch of different words are hard words. But the dominant thing you should hear and you should see is joy. So here, here's the first point. Rejoice! Exclamation point. Present persecution for Christ produces eternal reward for his disciples. Rejoice, exclamation point. 
present persecution for Christ produces eternal reward for us who are his disciples. Verse 22, it begins with the word blessed. It's the fourth beatitude. And so we, get, we, we come to it already perceiving that Jesus is going to tell us something about why there is good fortune towards us. So we, we get that from the start. But then, verse 23 takes that, that whole idea up several notches with the first command of this sermon. He hasn't given a command yet until verse 23, and he says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. So that twice, for, for emphasis, rejoice and leap for joy. Like, like John the Baptist in his mother's womb leapt for joy. Remember that terrible moment some months back when I leapt for joy? <laughs> I'm not going to do that again, but, but that's the... This is not... That's a good thing, and I should really kind of keep that in mind so that I would be happy sometime. This is joy. Rejoice and leap for joy. Ecstatic, excited in that day. Which day? When? When people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. That right then and that day, rejoice and leap for joy, which makes no sense. You see that I, I want to I be clear about the joy and the rejoicing and leaping for joy because it makes no unless you get it, it makes no sense because you rejoice in the day when they hate you and exclude you and revile you. That is, they hate you in their hearts. They have a motion of not just, we don't like him too much, hate. Strongly resist. And then beyond just feeling, when they exclude you, which we, we understand basically, we get exclude. We understand what it is to be set aside from something, ostracized. But it's even more powerful in this day because in this culture, in some cultures today too, but particularly in ancient cultures, society is communal. Maybe you can picture this if you picture a tribe or village, small gathering of people. Society is all communal. We sometimes think, man, I want a house on 10 acres away, away, away from somebody, privacy. That's not how the world works back then and in many places today. Everything is all together. You live with people. And to be excluded in that kind of an environment, to be cut off, you live in a, a hut or you live in, in a small little place right next to somebody else who now won't make eye contact with you, who won't talk to you, who won't do business with you, who won't eat with you, who won't let his kids be around your kids, who will cut you off, it, make you to live a living death because of the public known religious choice you have made to follow Jesus. A legal, accepted, prejudicial discrimination. They exclude you. Rejoice when they hate you and therefore cut you off. And when with words they revile you, they slander you, they insult you, they cut you down. And when they spurn your name as evil, that is your person, name is a person's self. When they call you bigoted and narrow-minded, wicked and evil. Leap for delighted joy when they treat you like that. What? Critical qualifier, end of verse 22. 
on account of the Son of Man. It's no cause for rejoicing just to be treated like this. There are all kinds of reasons that all kinds of people treat all kinds of people like this. People hate people, people exclude, people revile, etc., etc., etc. There's sin in that, certainly, but Jesus has one thing in view here, and we need to keep our attention on this one thing that he's talking about, on account of the Son of Man. When Christians are persecuted in these various ways, hated and excluded and reviled because of Jesus. That's the issue. And notice this very carefully. Not just Christians opposed or resisted or cut off by non-Christians. There are some reasons that that kind of separation or discord happens which Jesus is not talking about. It could be that you're a Christian and you find yourself kind of outside of the, of the in crowd at the office or, or on the playground because you don't wear the right clothes or you're not cool or they're cliquish. And it could be because you're rude or arrogant or foolish or you have bad breath anything. We sometimes use a statement like this and include more under it than Jesus means, and we use it to avoid dealing with the issues we should deal with. This is no license to be arrogant in our Christian profession and to be unloving in our Christian profession, and therefore they hate me just like Jesus said they would. No, they hate you because you're bossy and proud. We need to be careful with that. Jesus is not giving license to every Christian to put themselves in this verse. That caveat aside, he is speaking about an immense and sobering reality on account of the Son of Man. This Son of Man, we've seen that word a few times already, the one who claims authority to say what the law means, authority over the Sabbath. The one who claims authority on earth to forgive sin. This Son of Man, Jesus is telling us, really and truly divides all of the world. And that's sobering. His followers, you'll recall, the sections leading up to this sermon were about growing discord and growing animosity as people were, were checking out Jesus and his followers are seeing it, they're checking out Jesus and some have decided already. While Jesus is talking, the Pharisees are plotting how to kill him. That's going on at this time. And we who are followers of him, we can't expect anything else from the world other than what he got. We, we should expect the same. That there is this divide over the Son of Man, and these two sides are not in agreement over this critical issue. Who is Jesus, and how do we stand before him? The non-believing world, Christian, we, we are told this, we should be aware of it, we should not be surprised by it. The non-believing world will oppose us as we stand with and for Jesus. 
and particularly when we stand with and for Jesus in his particularism. Nobody has a problem with Jesus as one of the options, right? Everybody has a problem when you say Jesus is the only option. That's the way it is. Everybody has a problem with that because it says to someone, it says to all of the world, right and wrong. We don't like using those words today, but it says right and wrong. There is a way to be saved, and there are 10,000 other ways not to be saved. And as we talk with somebody and we make that clear, and it becomes clear in our conversation, I think you, friend, are in the not right, not saved, lost category. That, that's, that's not going to go over well. It isn't. We need to say that lovingly and graciously and kindly, but clearly, and if we are clear about that, it will not go well. The exclusivity, the, the particularity of Christ and of the gospel of Christ and of what Christ says is right and what Christ says is wrong, what Christ permits and what Christ forbids, at, at every place that we draw a line, we will find that the world divides from us. Do you know this opposition? Now, this passage is not telling us to go look for the opposition. It's saying that it, it will come. When it comes, it's telling us how to react, which we'll come to. But we don't go searching for We don't go trying to make people hate us and exclude us. It's saying, when that happens, do you know that in your life? Do you experience this in your life? In our culture, it probably looks less violent. I could have handed out, last week I passed out the copies of that Voice of the Martyrs magazine. I thought about doing that this week, but last week was Communion Sunday, and so I decided to, to, to distribute it so we could think about communion with those folks. But you could read those stories, Voice of the Martyr magazine, and you could see Christians with whom we are in communion, for whom this passage takes on really different color. They say, I wish people only excluded me. I wish they only insulted me verbally. You can read the story there about Christians being killed and, and fearing for their lives as they run with nothing. I mean, you read those stories and you see that's what the church experiences. That's not what we experience here so commonly, is it? But we do know, we, we do experience, probably more commonly in our circles, the, the, the tint and the color of embarrassment and shame, of mocking from others. Sometimes, the, I think probably what I most experience, maybe you, maybe you identify with this, probably what I most experience is what I would describe as an internal burden that realizes I'm here with you, but I'm not with you. And if the conversation were to go in a certain direction or if I were to say a certain thing, we would find this is uncomfortable. And I have to make a decision. Do, do I speak up here or not? What do I do in this moment? That, that kind of burden on on my mind is probably one of the things that I more commonly face. Maybe you face that. You make a decision about, I, I see what will come my way 
if I speak up, if I make a comment about this environment. Sometimes I find people who profess to be Christians. And I, I make a comment about Christian, clear Christian doctrine. You know, God doesn't allow picket. A really common one is anything related to divorce. Really common. Watch the divide. Watch the accusations of mean, hurtful, unloving. With professing Christians even. Do you know that kind of opposition? It's not really often, perhaps it'll grow in our country, but it's not often violent. It's not often officially overt discrimination. Maybe that'll come. But there is a disconnect between us, often at an emotional level, often at a a humiliation or a shame level, an insult level, a, a, a joking, a rebuke level. That's probably what we most commonly face and in those moments, what Jesus, Jesus is not telling us to seek those moments out or to go create them, but when they come, he's told us how we should be responding, not in fear, not in shrinking back, not even in despair. But he's told us rejoice. Rejoice. For, verse 23 then, He moves on to two reasons we should rejoice. Probably see you have two fours. For your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. He doesn't just tell us that we should rejoice and tell us that we should have this this bizarre, happy, ecstatic response, something that, that is sometimes awful and is at least incredibly uncomfortable. He tells us why we should go this way. Two reasons. And he mentions the prophets. He's talking about Old Testament prophets. When you are persecuted for Christ, when you are opposed and set aside outside for Christ, you are standing in historical unity with Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Habakkuk and Amos and Joel, etc., etc., etc. Including all the unnamed prophets who didn't write a book of the Bible, but who nonetheless called people to repent and turn to Messiah and were cast out for it. That's the ministry of true prophets, of true people of God. They speak a message that is at odds with the world. It calls people to the one Messiah and they are rejected for it. And when you find yourself in that place, you realize, I'm standing, you should realize, he's saying, I'm standing in line with the prophets. In other words, I'm standing in the proper line. I'm in the right. I'm speaking a message consistent with the Old Testament and I'm receiving a response consistent with the response in the Old Testament. which should ease our natural discomfort and uncertainty in such situations. Don't you, when you're standing in in the circle of friends and you, 
you hear the conversation and you realize, I, if I were to speak up, I would have to say something contrary. Don't you, in those moments, isn't there a little bit of the question in your mind, is it worth it? Am I right? How do I know I'm right? What will I say if they, I get embarrassed and I won't know how to respond to their, their, op, their opposing views? And in, right into that natural hesitation, this reason says, you stand in line with the prophets. You're in the right place. That doesn't mean you know everything, but you're in the right. So take heart in that. Be encouraged by that. Even if you don't know what to say, you are right. Rejoice knowing that you're right, that God was with them and that God defended them and God delivered them and God used them. Rejoice in that and you rejoice also knowing reward. Behold, your reward is great in heaven. So Christian, picture yourself here. You're standing in this place of opposition and, and maybe it's, it's harsh opposition or maybe it's just uncomfortable conversation. What he's saying Rejoice because in that moment you take your mind and you do this. You take your mind and you look ahead to heaven and you see, great is my reward in heaven. I rejoice now. Great is my reward in heaven. Reward. Jesus uses the word reward to make us think one step further than just natural next thing. We don't use the word reward in, like in the context of 13 is the reward for being 12. We don't, we don't say that. We might as a joke, but 13 just follows 12. Reward doesn't really fit there. Jesus uses the word reward to make us think something is coming that is not just what happens next. Reward makes us think, draws our mind onto cause and effect or action and consequence and a consequence that is given by someone in particular. Reward makes us realize there is an evaluator who sees and gives something. In this case, who sees and gives a reward. This is not just the next thing, like 13 follows 12. This is life here rewarded by someone. That's what Jesus wants you to take your mind and go, boom, not just, well, this will be over soon, but reward given by someone who's seeing this right now. This is so helpful for me. 
Your mind, you've got to grab a hold of this with your mind. If, if in the midst of, of whatever kind of difficulty, whether it's harsh opposition or just discomfort or intimidation or fear, any temptation to shrink back and, and kind of hide beneath a, a basket, put my lamp under a basket and just be quiet and let it all go so that nobody opposes me. No, 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 no. Reward. Someone is seeing and will give reward. Oh, that empowers me. That should empower you to rejoice right now if you grab a hold of that. It'll give you freedom. Freedom to take all kinds of loss and all kinds of, of critique and all kinds of humiliation now because you say, I'm, I'm not just saying, well, I'll take this whipping now and one day it'll stop, but I'll take this beating now and one day on top of it, there will not just be the ceasing of this, there'll be the giving of something else. Now, what is the reward that he gives? Well, to be short, I have no idea. I can guess, but I have no real idea. Ultimately, ultimately, our greatest reward in heaven, the, the, the deepest, sweetest reward of heaven is the presence of the Lord Jesus himself with communion with but every Christian gets that. So what does it mean that he rewards? There must be something else that, that I can receive from him other than the same thing that everybody else gets. That, because he wouldn't say this, he wouldn't use this as a, as a motivation, he wouldn't use this as an encouragement if it, if it was essentially, well, you'll get it either way. There's reward being held out in front of me here. So what is it? I don't know, but as I think about it, do you recall the passage from the Old Testament that described some of David's mighty men? And it talked about one of them who stood with the king in the field when the Philistines attacked. And they fought them off all day, and his hand, the muscles, the tension of his muscles gripped the sword hilt and they, he couldn't get his hand off the sword as they fought all day. He and the king in the field alone defeated the enemy. I read that story, maybe this is because I'm always just a little boy inside, and I want to be that when I grow up. I want to be that guy. Little boys, I mean, don't you, I hope you do, you want to be that guy who stands with the king back-to-back back in a field of lentils and fights off the Philistines and wins. And so that when they're all slain, all the enemies of God are dead and have turned away and run, you stand, you look at the king, and he looks you in the eye, and you put, well done, good and faithful servant. Man, that was tough. You and I here together, we'll have to tell them about it when they come back. I've always wanted to be that, and I think that something, I'm just... I don't know. But I think that something of that is the reward that we receive. The presence of Christ is with me just as with them. When they come back, he and I know something about what we went through that they didn't. And is there not, for us as people, is there not a sweet communion that you experience with other people when you've been through it with them? You've been through some trial, some difficulty, do we not read all the history books and uh, the unique bond that combat veterans have with each other? They can't ever express in words to a friend who wasn't there. 
There's something there, I think, there's something there that is this reward. Communion with Christ is something that we all will experience, but something in me says, I want to, when I commune with you, I want you and I to know that I stood faithful with you in the midst of this. I want to know that. I want to see the glint in your eye that remembers with me. Now maybe there's more I think there is at least that included in the reward. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 4 about how all of our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us, are gaining for us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, which far outshines them all. I think this is a piece of that an eternal weight of glory that rests on the well-doing, good, faithful servant. It rests on all of his people, all of us. If you are a Christian, he is pleased with you and will say to you, well done, my servant. You endured to the end. Enter into the master's pleasure for all of us. But I think there is something else here Captured under that word reward, there must be something else. And I've, I've offered you my best thought on it. Sift that. Take it. Do with it what you will. But whatever the reward actually is, and I don't think we can define it now, I do know this. He's a really good rewarder. We'll be happy with it. Whatever it is. He'll get it right. And he tells us that so that we'll pursue it. And so that we'll look at it and reckon, great is my reward because I have stood here faithful and endured. Rejoice in that. Leap for joy over that. Don't lose heart. Don't shrink back. It is possible that we could shrink back and avoid the persecution, but we would miss something, some reward. We should rejoice, reckoning that when people oppose us, Christian, when people oppose us, we stand in the right and we are headed towards reward. Rejoice. And secondly, the flip side now, eternal reward will be missed by those who live for this present world. Eternal reward will be missed by those who live for this present world. In verse 24, Jesus changes his approach and the four Beatitudes are now replaced by, and and really if you walk through it, you notice exactly mirrored by four matching woes. Not pronouncements of blessed, happy, fortunate are you, but sorrowful, lacking, and doomed. Woe. 
Woe to you. Well, to whom? To whom is he speaking? This carries right on in the sermon, so who's the you now? Well, again, initially we have to reckon that his initial audience is still the people sitting right in front of him, the the disciples, the self-professing followers of his. Self-professing is the key part because there's a tragedy here that then most of these folks are not going to follow him all the way to the end. And even today within the church, there are professing Christians, some of whom are not actual Christians. So he certainly has that in view, and there is, of course, then certainly a call to evaluate oneself. But additionally, in this context, we've got to also be aware that Jesus is talking. You could put it in a setting like this. If, if I'm talking to this group right here, I can see the other multitude that's all around. I mean, that's the setting. Jesus is talking immediately to his followers, his, his professing disciples, but there is a whole host of people who have no professed allegiance at all who are around, and he can see them, so he knows they're listening too. So without naming particular individuals, he's talking to two groups of people. Those who profess to be mine, you need to listen to this, and those who don't profess, you need to listen to this too. So he's talking to everybody. When he says, Woe, this warning. Woe to you who are full now, who are rich in spirit. Woe to you who have what you need, who, who are enjoying life now. Woe to you when people speak really kindly of you and when the world, this, this world, when it loves you and really appreciates everything that you say, when you find yourself walking in harmony and pronouncing things that everybody already agrees with and enjoying what this world offers to you and having everything that you need and everything that you want and being happy with that, woe to you. Comfortable with this world, eternal sorrow and emptiness awaits. That's the reverse of every one of these statements. It's the reverse of all of the Beatitudes. And it is sobering. It is sobering. Jesus is talking to who knows how many, a vast multitude of people. We have already seen in in his healing of them indiscriminately that he has compassion on all people, that he has a, a great concern for all people, and so he warns all people. Life lived like this, life lived in pursuit of this world and and of a grasping after and a contenting oneself with this world leads to incredible, unending sorrow. And right now, in, in this moment, he's not even pronouncing woe to you in the future. He's saying the flip of, of blessed, like you should be happy now. You should be sorrowful now if you realize, he says, for you have received your consolation. And there is no more. 
If you stopped and properly evaluated your life, you'd say, this is as good as eternity gets for me. Because there is a day coming when this one, this Son of Man, will sit and he, he will come and he will stand on the earth and sit on the throne then of judgment and he will ask one question, do you know me? Do I know you? That's it. And tragically, woefully, most of the world does not. And that's what life is about. It is, it, is so, it is so easy to forget that this is what life is about. I'm, I'm a pastor, but I live a normal American life like everybody else, and I, I have things related to personal life. I have things related to family and kids, and I'm, I'm on, I'm, my whole Friday night's committed to different settings in a different town than I usually go to in a different environment and, and sport activity and fun. And, and, and then I, I come back from all that, and that evening I sit down again a little bit with, with some of this material, and I think, man, this seems so foreign to me. I'm, I'm a pastor. I deal with the Bible a fair bit in my life. It's an understatement. I read it with frequency. I think about it a lot. I know what I'm going to preach in two days, day and a half. And I come back from the volleyball gym in Kearns, sit down with the Bible and say, what? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everything that was consuming me and everything that was so exciting and so fun and, and so confusing and intriguing and, and boring and all that stuff was passing away and beside the issue. And this that seems so foreign to me is the issue. Who is Jesus? First and last question. Who is he? And most of the world, tragically, most of the world does not answer it properly. Does not even care to try. Most of it. Most of the world doesn't answer it properly. I mean, he's a nice teacher, a good guy, I suppose. Christian. You know who he is. And if you're not a Christian, I plead with you, consider this Jesus. He is God come in flesh and the only, here's the exclusivity part, the only way to be saved. Because all of us stand under judgment, under sin. Living for this world, content to fill our lives with the stuff we can lay our hands on and can acquire here. But there is a day coming that shall be hungry, shall mourn and weep when he comes and says, have you trusted me alone? Yes or no. Am I Lord of your life? Yes or no. And for most, the answer is no. And mourning and sorrow follows. I plead with you, 
flee from that moment. The only way you can flee from that moment is right now, today, by trusting Christ. This is a sobering reality, a sobering warning that not only are the lowly lifted up, we all might cheer that, but the high and mighty are cast down. Don't be that. Come to Him humble and low and say, Lord, I need help. (coughs) That's real. We need to consider that. Perhaps you yourself uniquely need to consider that. But we also have to see something else. That while Jesus does include the matching, the other side of the story, the rest of the story, he moves on in verse 27 and following to continue to preach to the church, to professing believers. So we need to keep realizing that primarily He's primarily talking to professing believers. So we have to notice, like, what purpose do these woes serve in the flow of the whole sermon? Well, they they serve to alert us to the necessary reality, the necessary reality, that there is an opposite that needs to be dealt with, maybe by you personally. But it also serves to point out to us There is, in fact, to point out to a Christian, that there is, in fact, a reckoning. There is, in fact, a day coming when it all gets sorted out. And you should then ask yourself a question. Christian, you should ask yourself a question. Why am I in 20, 21, 22, and 23 and not 24, 25, 26? Why are you? Blessings and woes, blessings and curses. Why aren't you in the second half, in the cursed half? He encouraged you earlier to rejoice and to leap for joy as you consider that great is your reward in heaven as you stand here persecuted. I think if you you will ask yourself this question and then walk through all the way to the answer, that even more your your joy, your, your tendency to in your heart leap up and not allow yourself to remain forlorn and downcast, that this tendency to leap up will will blossom and will grow. If if you ask yourself the question, why I should be in the second half, why not? Why aren't you? Not because you are good and humble and righteous and faithful. Not because of that. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all love the world. We all were committed to pursuing it and getting everything we get our hands on and and building a life with what we could acquire and seeking after the acquisition of more. That's all of us. We would not have sought Him ever. Ever. 
We ourselves are not born lowly in spirit, but are proud. We ourselves, Christian, you yourself, are not inclined by nature to look out at the world and long for more righteousness in yourself and in others all around you. You are not inclined by nature to be grieved over your sin and to long for the King to control you and change you. You're not inclined to weep at the lack of the King's rule. We are inclined to weep, certainly here in this world, but not over that. And we do not stand from in our natures. That's, none, of that's, none of that's us. There's one reason that you're in the first half and not in the second. It's because of the grace of God. He Himself, God the Son, did not regard, as was already read here this morning, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but Himself said, I will be hated. I will be excluded from My own who will not receive Me. And I will be reviled and cursed, scorned, called evil, called a blasphemer by those all around Me, hung up under curse with a verdict over My head, guilty, wicked, vile, called that by My own, and even called that by My Father. Do you get that? The reason you're not in the woes is because He was by grace. He took upon Himself all such pronouncements for you. He was not lowly, but He became lowly. He should not have been reviled, but He was. And so He has something he has a righteousness, a perfect obedience to the law to give to you. And He takes on Himself what should be on each of us, the verdict of God. He was reduced to loud cries and mourning here in this life, made to hunger and long for a fellowship that He did not have. And He did it all looking ahead to His great reward, knowing that He would receive what He desired in His soul, the purity of a people for Himself and the Father's justice and love displayed. Jesus walks this path and then turns around and gives to you, Christian, gives to you grace to walk the path right behind Him, to walk the very same steps, to walk through scorned, reviled, opposed, poor in spirit, weeping and longing, looking ahead to reward. That's exactly the path that Christ walked. And He walked it for you and then gives you grace to follow Him. And that's the only reason that you are in the first half of this passage and not in the second. <laughs> and you just aren't listening if that doesn't cause you to rejoice. This is what life is about. It's what life is about. And what God has done for you to change all of this life and to give you every, 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 every reason to, while sorrowing, be rejoicing and leaping for joy while sorrowing. Not instead of, but while. He's given you every reason to do that. What He has blessed you with in this life 
and then held out in front of you reward that is to come. What a glorious and good Savior He is. He has done all you need. He has won for you great reward in heaven. He has secured it for you. And one day is coming when He, the evaluator, will give it to you Himself. So Christian, do not lose heart, but stand firm when people around you hate you and oppose you and revile you and call you evil. Whether that's hard and, and painful or whether it's awkward and embarrassing, stand under that faithful and rejoicing seeing a day when you will be rewarded. Let me pray. Father, would you please build your people and grow in us real joy. Would you please make each of us discontent with substitute joys? I say thank you. We say thank you and we mean it. Thank you for all of the good things in life that you give us. And I pray that you would enable us to see them as pointers, as markers towards you and not have our eyes fixed on and, and focused on, contented with them alone in isolation from you. And speak to us, stay, stay near to us, stay near to us in our hearts so that when we, as we walk through life and we live, we live in the days and in the years of, of time here that we don't just get overwhelmed with life and forget what life is really about who life is really about. We need help with this, so please give it, Lord. Would you call our eyes to the fact that we walk in the truth, and would you call our eyes to the fact that you will reward us? Would you encourage us to stand faithful, rejoicing? Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. We love you and we trust you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.